Please take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16, and there is locked into our theme scripture these days a remarkable principle that I would like to share with you and then leave with you and ask that uh, you ponder it this week and let it make an addition to your own Christian life. But it is in chapter 16, verse 9, when the seven weeks of harvest is mandated. Verse 9, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain and keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, the Levite within your gates, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days, when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son, your daughter, your manservant, maidservant, the Levite, stranger, fatherless, widow. Verse 15, seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. Then he summarizes it. Three times a year, all your males will come before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, where the tabernacle was, the feast of unleavened bread, Passover, Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They shall not appear empty-handed, and every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So there were three times they came before the Lord. And each time they brought a thank offering. But there's something here that struck me as I studied that. I don't know whether you caught that, but... The giving was not only an expression of thanks to God for the past, but it was an expression of faith for the future. Look carefully at verse 15. When you come to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, you give an offering, and that means you're looking forward to the Feast of Weeks, the first harvest or the barley harvest, which came 50 days after Passover. At Passover, I mean at the Feast of Weeks, you gave an offering to the Lord and said, thank you for the first harvest, the harvest of barley. And you said, by faith, I'm trusting God for the second harvest, which comes in October, and that is the Feast of Tabernacles. And in verse 15, that's what he says. Keep a sacred feast to the Lord because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. Now let this principle be buried in your mind that the giving of thanks not only expresses appreciation for the past, but it opens the windows of heaven of God for the future. That was a new idea to me. It was a novel idea. It struck me as I read it. The giving of a free will offering, thank God for the past, but by faith an offering look to the future. We often look at thanks in a backward way. We only think of it as in the past. 
But actually, thanksgiving always is to point us to the future. As sowing seed implements God's laws of harvest to produce a future harvest, sowing thanksgiving releases God's laws for future blessing. Now, just suppose that Alan Brown is ready to retire. You ready to retire? You're not ready to retire. But if you could get a good retirement, come, we'll put you to work here. We got several jobs we can. But anyway, how long have you been with Reynolds now? Almost 16 years you've been an engineer with Reynolds. You know these engineers. They take care of the details. That's an Alan Brown. Now, suppose that he gets ready to retire and they say, Mr. Brown, we are so grateful for the years of work you've given us. Here is a check for $500,000 in appreciation for all that you have done. How does that sound, Alan? You, you, you like that, Ari? Uh, would you be sure to tithe it? Okay, good. Now, what that says is an expression of appreciation for the past, but I'll tell you what, that would open all kinds of opportunities for him in the future, wouldn't it? I'd put that baby, that check on deposit somewhere or put it in a mutual fund, and, uh, and then I'd give, I'd say now, uh, if I were Alan, I'd say now, Linda, you can have all the proceeds of this to spend in the future. Wouldn't that be a great man? How does that sound? See if Linda, how does that sound to you, Linda? Sounds great, okay. So a giving of thanks for the past almost always has implication for the future. I'm not sure we've ever really understood that. It may be whether I'm just coming to kneel in God's presence and say, thank you, Lord, for your grace to me. And by doing that, I open the windows of heaven for God to pour out more grace on me. A, a man bought several cows at an auction, and they were supposed to be really good cows. He went down to the local feed store and got the best feed he could get to feed those cows. And uh, several months later, he went back to the feed store, and he said, I'm giving these cows the best feed I can give them, but my best cow has gone dry. And the feed store manager said, that can't be if you're giving him this feed. Are you sure you're milking him? Yeah, or milking her. Or, yeah, I milk. If I need eight ounces, I go out and get eight ounces. If I need 16 ounces, I go out and 16, get 16 ounces. But if I don't need any milk, I don't milk it. Ah, said the feed store manager, that's your problem right there. Unless she is constantly giving, she will shut down for the future. And all of you raised on a farm said, Amen. Amen. Because giving not only deals with the past, but it always creates in the economy of God an open door for the future. Now, let me illustrate that with a New Testament story, all right? Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Don't you love the way the New Testament unfolds the old and the old precurses the new? Here's one of the great stories. You're familiar with this story. In chapter 17 of the Gospel of Luke and verse 11, it happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. 
And as he entered a certain village, he met ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now watch what happens in the story. Something very interesting. First, there is, the lepers have a fellowship. They were not allowed in the city. They had to stand off. Oftentimes, the fellowship that we have as believers is a fellowship of need. A pastor said that he had surveyed six churches and that there was an average of 70 to 80% of everybody who attended the worship services who had come on that Lord's Day morning with hurt and pain or some special need that they had brought to worship on that Lord's Day morning. That's not necessarily bad. That's the human lot. That is where we are. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is, what's the word? Do you remember the phrase? Common to man. And the lepers had a common fellowship of need and hurt and pain and alienation and isolation and loneliness. And the scripture says that as they watched him come, they lifted up their voices and they had a common faith. Lord Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. What happens when the people of God join together to call upon the name of God for mercy? Just what would happen if we really meant business about revival for 50 days we prayed? I don't believe Shirley and I have missed a day praying for revival in our church since April 14th. And I thought of this, what would happen if we really, really meant business and 90% of the congregation, of the stated congregation, cried out like the lepers, O oh Lord, have mercy on us and revive us and renew us. But there's a third thing. When he saw them, he said to them, verse 14, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. That's all. A step of obedience. Go show yourself to the priest. That was essential for being declared healed. Go show yourself to the priest. The priest could put them back into society and back into the mainstream. Go show yourself to the priests. And the scripture says, as they went, they were cleansed. There was a common healing. All of them were healed. A common fulfillment of their faith. But verse 15 now draws a line between nine of them and one of them. Jesus, uh, or verse 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him, underline the word, what is the word class? Thanks. Giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, But were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? 
Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Only one returned to give thanks. And be, now they were all healed. There were nine who were, there were ten who were physically sick and nine who had the blessing of the past. They were healed from their leprosy of the past. But their lives were never touched for the future because they did not come and render thanks. Were there not ten? Where are the nine? So verse 19, Jesus said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. You've not only been physically cleansed and physically healed, but you've been made whole. Your whole life has been opened up to a brand new level of fellowship with God that the other nine will never know anything about. The giving of thanks always opens up the windows of heaven of God for your future. It is always true. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Can you quote it? If any man be where? Do you remember? In Christ, he is a new creature. Now the past, old things are what? Passed away. And all things else become new. Brand new. When I give my heart, mind, and life to God and lay it out to him, the past is forgiven. And God gives me a new start. I believe that that is a missing link to the giving of thanks. Not only did the lepers have a fellowship and common faith, and, common, and nine of them had common uh, fulfillment, but one of them had a future. The Lord said, go thy way, be made whole. Fred Craddock, in one of his, the great Methodist homiletics professor, in one of his seminars for preachers said, you know, most of us think that giving our lives to God is like handing him a check for $1,000. We do it once and it's all over. He said, I've discovered in the Christian life that when we give our lives to the Lord, it's like we give him $1,000 and he sends us to the bank and says, cash it out in quarters. And he gives us $1,000 worth of quarters and we go through life just giving thanks to the Lord. We witness to a lost man over here and that's one quarter and we call somebody who's lost a brother and that's another quarter and we, we take a chicken pie to somebody whose family is sick and that's another quarter. And we go through life dispensing our thanks to the Lord by our ministry in quarters, in little bitty quarters, not even half dollars. In fact, I can't even remember when I've seen a half dollar. How long has it been since you saw a what, what happened to half dollars? Have you ever thought about that? Why are half dollars, why do they lose their popularity? Why do we have to carry two quarters? I mean, wouldn't it be easier to have one half dollar than two quarters? Have you gone to the bank and given them two quarters and said, I'd like to have a half for that? See what they say. They'll look at you like you're crazy. I ha can't even remember when, when I've seen one, a half dollar. But not even half dollars. God says when we give him our lives, here it is. I want you to take it in quarters and give it out. It may be 
coming to church. It may be teaching a Sunday school class. It may be working in preschool. It may be ministering to somebody in need. It may be edifying somebody, building them up in the Lord. But we're giving thanks when we, when we give anything away. I'm not talking about money here. I'm talking about yourself, your interest, your love, your concern, your ministry, the gospel to a lost man. A ride to a shut-in who has no other way to get to church. As one of our ladies said to me last week, I'd love to come to church, but I can't get anybody to come by and pick me up. And we just go through life dispensing our quarters and by that saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've given to me. And every time I give, I am saying, God, I am looking to the future. I think that is one reason why the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Why should I give thanks in the middle of my troubles? Because I'm thanking God for what he's going to do in the future with my troubles. I am thanking him. Now there are several things that happen when we give thank offerings to the Lord, whether it's time in the Word, whether it's a day of ministry, whether it's teaching Sunday school or whatever, there are several things that happen. First, when we give thanks to the Lord and our lives are permeated with the spirit of thanksgiving, we are proving that God can trust us. We're proving God can trust us. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given me. Now, here's what I've done with it. Now, I want to express thanks to you. And God says, now, I take delight in that. If you can handle this, I'll give you thus. Some Sunday school teachers are asking about this spiritual gifts blitz next week. And somebody asked, is that a test of your spirituality to see how spiritual you are? No. <laughs> Only test for spirituality I know about is to somebody to kick you in the shins. That'll test your spirituality, Amen. Either that or driving out of this parking lot on Sunday morning at 12.05. That'll test your spirituality. They're worried about us giving a spiritual gifts assessment. No, all we're doing is giving you a chance to see, based upon your answers, what your spiritual gifts are. Whether God can, tr what has he trusted you with? One teacher wanted to know, well, if, uh, what if, I'm a Sunday school teacher, and what if I don't have the gift of teaching? You going to kick me out of my class? <laughs> no, I'm not going to kick you out of your class. We probably got a lot of Sunday school teachers that don't have the gift of teaching, but they've got the gift of helps, and they've got the gift of mercy, and they know how to love their class. And I want to tell you, if you know how to love people, you might be the worst uh, information giver in the world, but you're going to do a great job in that class because the teacher who loves the class will be heard by the class. Amen? That's true. And so Sunday school teachers, that's what we're doing. We just want to help everybody find where God wants them to serve. And, and I think it will help us to think about what it is God has trusted. When I give thanks, whether it's a prayer of thanks, an offering of thanks, a gift of money, a witness, a ministering outreach, I am saying, God, you can trust me. Secondly, when I give thanks... 
I am demonstrating that I trust God. <laughs> Just do the flip. I am saying, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. I'll cast my bread on the waters, as it were. I'll throw out what I have, and I trust you to take it and go with it. I know some of you sit in here on Sunday morning and read your Sunday school lesson to get ready for the second Sunday school. I see you doing it. I know some of you sit here and you make me think you're writing in your Bible and then I get real spiritual and think, boy, isn't he doing great? And then I look up and he's just picked up his daytime or he's been planning his week. <laughs> and, and, and I know some of you are writing notes to each other. You adults do that all the time, don't you? Not the young people, the adults. Amen, young people? <laughs> the qu Good, amen. I like you, Eric. <laughs> but the question is once I dispense the word and you as a Sunday school dis uh, teacher dispense the word, the, the responsibility is now God's. It's not mine. It's yours and God's. Amen? And so it is with our gifts. I used to think that everybody I witnessed to had to come to Christ and if they didn't, I was a failure. But it's only my job to cast out the word. And God says, my word shall not return unto me. What, class? Void but it shall accomplish that which I please. But there's a third thing that giving thanks, whatever form it takes, the third thing it does. It says, it testifies that I'm living in the future. That I'm not living in the past. That I'm not going to operate with God on the basis of the past, but on the basis of the future. That's a powerful principle. Now turn over here to Hebrews chapter 11. It is a principle that dominated every great man or woman of faith. He lived for the future. When we talk about Abraham in chapter 11, look at verse 10. Abraham waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He had his eyes not on the past, but on the future. He had his eyes on the future. Verse 13. All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Abraham confessed he was a stranger and a pilgrim. He lived in a tent. But he kept his eye on something else God had for him in the future. In fact, in verse 14, the writer says, those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland to come, something in the future. They could have gone back to the old country. Abraham could have gone to the Ur of the Chaldees, verse 15. Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. And God is not ashamed to be called their God. Do you understand what that means? What that means is that whatever you're looking for that God has promised you, God will never be ashamed. He won't be embarrassed when you get to heaven. He won't say to you, oh, Ken, you know, I, I, I had planned to have you a nice mansion, but I'm sorry, just a little shack. God will never be embarrassed or ashamed. I mean, when we get to heaven, what we've looked for, God has. Every promise in the book is true. Everything God has laid down for us is there. We're living in the future, and there is a future, and God will not be ashamed by it. That's what the Scripture says. I don't have any doubt my Lord will do everything He promised for me. Amen? 
Well, that's, that's a grand hope that is ours because of Christ. So it testifies I'm living in the future. Now, I, I want to stop for a second. If you're a thinking Christian, there are two objections to this whole principle. Two objections that we ought to raise here and answer. Objection number one is, wait a minute. If God is sovereign, how can thanksgiving affect the future? If God is a sovereign God and he has everything laid out in his mind, how can my giving of thanks affect the future if God is a sovereign God? Did you ever ask that question? Did you ever think that way? I've asked that question. I have to admit to you. And the book of uh, James says, if any man lack wisdom and you don't understand the ways of God, it's all right to ask. He never rebukes for asking. Aren't you glad of that? He never rebukes for asking. Young people, he never rebukes for asking. High school graduates, when you get to college, Lori, don't be afraid to ask. Amen? Stephanie, you got that down? Don't be afraid to ask. And don't think it's wrong to wonder why God does what he does. Now, it's, it's good that God leads us to faith. But let's, let's take this question. If God is sovereign, how can my giving of thanks, well, even prayer, how could prayer affect the future? I love A.W. Tozer's explanation of this. In one of his books, he says, look, folks, God has a sovereign destiny planned for us. As Christians, he has promised to get us to heaven. Amen? I'm going to make it there. Larry, you're going to make it to heaven. God's going to get you to glory. I promise you, Judy, you're going to glory. God's got you there. He said that the Christian life is like all of us being on a cruise ship. And the destination is England, let's say. Now, the ship is carrying us all along at the same speed in the same direction and we'll all get to England the same time, right? But some of us, Bruce, are down here eating lobster on that ship and some of us are in the swimming pool on the ship and some of us are over here pulling the slot machine. I mean, uh, some of us are over here on the ship. What, what else are we doing on that ship? Some of us are over here on the ship in a prayer group over in the lounge. And some of us are sitting out on the sun deck with a glass of Coke in our hands. We're all doing different things because though we're on the ship, we have choices as to how we operate, but we're all going in the same direction at the same speed, and God will get us to the destination at the same time. That is the sovereign God. And our thanksgiving is the way that we cooperate with where he's going while he's taking us there. And when I am saying thank you for a problem, I am testifying that I'm living in the future and waiting on God. As the ship is moving towards England, I'm waiting on God to show me, now that I'm done eating my lobster and my uh, chilled gazpacho, and uh, I, I'm now waiting on God to show me what's my next move while we're moving towards England. But there's a second objection that we could ask. Can we bargain with God? Isn't the giving of thanks about something and giving it and thanking God for the future, thinking that you're going to unlock God's 
windows of heaven for the future? Isn't that a form of bargaining with God? I thought I couldn't bargain with God. Well, I want to tell you something. God's purposes are going to be accomplished no matter what you do. He'll do it with you or without you. But within God's sovereign will, wait a minute, listen to me, there is a God who hears and listens and answers. I may not call it bargaining. How about Abraham in Genesis 18? The angels came and said, you know those twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? We're going to destroy those. I'm going to bring judgment. You better get the righteous out of there. And Abraham, what did he do? What did he say? If I find 50 will you, righteous, would you hold the city? Yeah. 45? Yeah. 40? Yeah. 30? Yeah. 20? Yeah. 10? He couldn't find 10. Now, I don't know whether you'd call that bargaining with God or not, but I'll tell you what. It was a case in which God demonstrated that he was listening to his people and if he had found the righteous, he would have withheld his hand till later. <laughs> Jacob was wrestling with the Lord by the stream Jabbok. And he said, I will not let thee go unless you bless me. Remember that? And the angel touched his thigh and he walked with a limp the rest of his life. There was a cost. There was a cost. But God's hand of blessing was on that manipulator on that man, Jacob, God still blessed him. Phenomenal in my judgment. When David sinned and numbered the people, God gave him a choice of three judgments. Which would you like to have? You remember what David said? Oh, I'd rather be in the hands of God than the hands of men. So, Lord, you send the plague on me. I am of, a, of an opinion that we have missed out on the power of praise and thanksgiving. However, that thanks is expressed. Whether it's the thanks in a financial offering, thanksgiving in a verbal offering to the Lord of praise, the sacrifice of our lips giving praise, whether it is the giving of our time, whether it is ministry to somebody, whether it is giving thanks by yielding our life in a greater measure to God, we are missing out. When I praise God, when I give thanks to Him for my problem, I am opening up the windows of heaven for the future. I've watched this over the last seven or eight years of my life. And I have seen God do some things I would never, I could not, I could not have dreamed or imagined. There was a particular need in my life and I thank God for the solution he was going to work out. It was a little over three months. Every night I thanked God for the solution and praised him that he was going to work it out some way. I didn't know how. And then one day, just out of nowhere, everything fell in place and it all worked out. I could give you four or five huge examples of that in my life in the last few years. I want to tell you the power of thanks is the power that Israel rendered before God when they came at the feast of Passover. And when you read the Deuteronomy passage, it's saying, thank you, Lord, for delivering us out of Egypt. Amen? Aren't you glad God saved you from the past? That's done. But it's saying there's a barley harvest coming in just 50 days. And then at the feast of weeks, they went before the Lord and gave a thanksgiving praise to God. And they said, thank you for the barley harvest. But they were saying, by faith, thank you for the wheat harvest that will take place in October. And when they met in October, they were saying, thank you for the, the wheat harvest. 
And thank you, Lord, that next year you who hold the seasons in your hand will produce again. And on and on and on, the giving God who is able to give super abundantly above all that you can ask or think. When I pray in thanksgiving, when I give in thanks, when I serve in thanks, when I witness in thanks, when I minister to another in thanks, when I build somebody up and edify them in thanksgiving, I am unlocking the windows of heaven to my future. And God is saying what he said to Abraham or to Jacob or to David. Well, Mark, if you'll honor me this way, I'll do this. Uh, there's a fine line, I know, between motive. I'm going to get rich because I'm giving to God. If you think that, have I ever got something for you? But I tell you what you will do, you will be made whole. You'll have contentment and you'll have joy and you'll have the pleasure of God's fellowship and you'll have the pleasure of peace and rest and contentment in the will of God. When you say thank you, you are saying, here's the rest of my life. I missed that when I first read the Deuteronomy 16 scripture. I thought giving of thanks only related to the past, but perhaps we've seen it backwards. And we need to do the flip side because in the law of sowing and reaping, sure, it makes sense. When I sow a life, I'm going to reap something in the future. That was a horrible dictator in Uganda in the early 70s. Do you remember that? You know, the world hasn't learned what to do with the Hitlers, really. The world hasn't learned what to do with the Idi Amin's. Oh, what's that guy's name in Serbia? We don't know what to do with him. He's still in power. And that's another matter, perhaps, and there are two sides to that story, perhaps. But, but we don't know what to do with those who are despots and use their power. And we certainly haven't solved the problem, have we? It appears not. But Idi Amin was a dictator of the worst sorts. I mean, he took Christians and buried them up to their necks and then had his soldiers for their faith, if they would not renounce, had them take long, hot spears and drive them in the center of their heads, buried in the ground where there was no defense, and pierced their skulls. Gave new meaning to martyrdom, in my judgment. 1973, February 10th, in a town called Kabali, Amin had ordered three men to be executed by a firing squad. The soldiers went through the town and commanded everybody to come and everybody to get into the little stadium in the city so they could watch the firing squad shoot these three men. A great and well-known African pastor by the name of Festo Kevengeri was allowed by the government to come into the field and speak to the three condemned men. When they were brought onto the field, they were handcuffed, their feet were in shackles. When they were unloaded off the truck, Kavengeri said he went to them wondering, what do I say 
to men who are going to die by a firing squad? And how do I communicate the comfort of God to them? And when the men turned, they looked at me with huge smiles on their faces and said, Pastor, Pastor, this is the greatest thing that's happened to us. He thought, oh my goodness, what has happened? They said when we were thrown into prison and told that we would be executed, one by one we turned to God. We gave our hearts to Jesus and gave our lives totally over to him. And we have the joy of forgiveness for everything we've done. And we know now that we have heaven. We're, that's where we're headed. And we can give our lives gladly because we know where God is going to take us. Well, Pastor Cavengeri thought, what do I do? And then it struck him, I must tell what they're saying in the dialect of the executioners because I want them to have a witness to the executioners. And the three condemned men, as high as they could, raised their manacled hands and shouted to the people, God is great, Jesus is Lord, we love him, we're going with him. And so Pastor Cavendry, who knew the dialect of the executioners, translated for them what the three condemned men had said. And for a moment, the men faltered and tears filled their eyes. But then in obedience to their government, they raised their guns. The guns cracked and the three men were shot and they departed into glory. Cavendry went to preach the next week in the province of one of those men. And in that church, jammed out, there was the pall of death and discouragement hanging over the crowd because one of their own had been executed. And Cavendry thought, what am I going to do? And he made the heart of his message. He just told about how these men had given their whole lives and how they had faced death because they knew the future was God's future. When he gave the invitation, about half of the crowd came forward to acknowledge Jesus Christ and be saved. And the giving of their lives had sown for a harvest of souls that they could never have had had they lived. When I read that, I thought of the Alca Indians down in Ecuador, 1956. I'm a sophomore in college. When the news comes of the slaying of the Alca, by the Alca Indians of the missionaries, Jim Elliott and, uh, and uh, Nate Saint and the others. And did you know that today nearly all of the Alcas are Christian? It's now 80% believers because the sister of one of those men went and told them about Jesus. When we give our all, I'm telling you, we are not only saying thank you for what you've done in the past, we are opening the windows of the future for God to heal our pain, solve our problems, bring down blessing from heaven that you and I cannot measure. I want to cash in on what God is doing. Amen and amen.